Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back to cover Chapter 3 of Peace. This is the third recap episode, and we're going to be covering pages 169 to 180 in the Orb 2012 edition. If you're joining us for the first time, please uh, return to the beginning of our coverage of Chapter 3 at least, because we're really right in the middle of stuff right now. Uh, it's a bad time to jump into the show, I think, just just off the cuff. Uh, this this section's amazing. We're going to have a lot to talk about throughout this section. Wolf is really just tightening the screws of this story with Julius Smart, though it's more set up for things that are going to take place further on in the story, and then some payoffs for things that have happened early on. So can't wait to, to cover this section. Yeah, you joke, Brandon, that uh, this is not a good place to jump right in. And I agree with you on that. But actually, for a novel, right, as novels go, Peace is strangely a novel where I could see someone just saying, you know what, I don't feel like reading chapter one. I'm just going to start at chapter two and actually getting some real enjoyment out of it. I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. I think chapter one is really a kind of a gauntlet being thrown down. This chapter could be published really by itself as a standalone oh, story yeah. if you wanted to. Uh, this episode in particular, I think, would take people too far <laughs> afield, though. <laughs> right, right, right. And we do pick up exactly where we left off last time with Julius Smart spending his first night in Mr. Tilly's house and then waking up in the middle of the night to discover a weird, moist spot on his bed and also having the feeling that someone has been in his room. Now, Julius turns on the light and he sees that the door is open and he's pretty sure that he'd closed it before going to sleep. But there isn't anyone there and he makes a point of searching behind the dresser and under the bed, though he knows that there isn't anyone there at this point. This is, I don't know, just for show in in, in some way. And the wet spot on the bed is disturbing. And it turns out that it probably isn't water. It's drying too fast and it's leaving a sticky residue. So he decides to get a new sheet and he knows that Tilly keeps them in a closet in the hallway. And when he's in the hallway, well, Tilly is there too. He's holding a candle at the other end of this very long hallway just outside his room. And he wants to know if Julius has heard anyone walking around. And Julius does not want to say what's been going on with him in, in his room, and he tries to pass it off as if they must have woken each other up. But Tilly says that Julius would be able to tell the difference. He says, what you heard, if you had heard her, would be quite different. So, yeah, that's creepy. But it does not stop there. We're really just getting started here. So Tilly is just wearing his underwear. I mean, it's, you know, it's hot in the South. And Julius can see that Tilly's got some kind of skin condition. Uh, one of his sides doesn't look natural, and both of his hands have it as well. And Tilly catches Julius looking at him, and so one pharmacist to another, he takes Julius's hand and rubs it on the, the side, on his side, so that Julius can tell what is going on with Tilly. And Julius tells his audience this, some evening, when you go out for a stroll, when it's a trifle damp and cold, and you wear a wrap and find yourself thinking of having a nice cup of coffee or cocoa when you get home, reach down and feel the walk. That was just what poor Mr. T's side felt like. Cold and gritty and not quite dry. Which is just a, a beautiful, brilliant description, right? It just pulls up so many senses. I know exactly what this is going to feel like. And Wolf Breaks here, this is a great stopping point, right, to keep our uh, attention. So I'll break here too with... Um, what really amounts to just a really phenomenal simile 
Yeah, it's an amazing simile, and we can use it to track how Wolf through weird, through smart, is using language here in, in Smart's tale. I mean, this chapter is almost perfectly crafted on every level. Like, I, I think we're, we will have to have a craft section in our discussion, which we often avoid in, the, in these kind of like longer pieces until the wrap-up episode, because this chapter, in reading this chapter, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly in awe of Wolf's careful use of language that's that's on display here. So yeah, Glenn, you pointed out this description of Tilly's skin. You just read it. And here's how Smart describes the wet spot on his bed. He says, it was already drying fast, too fast, I thought, for it to be water. Where it dried, though, it didn't dry clean, but left a sort of soil behind that was sticky when I touched it. I mean, this description of the wet spot is written in a way that almost matches in a weird way the description of Tilly's skin and Tilly's hands are described as having a dirty white color as well. And all of these descriptions call to mind similar images, at least in my mind. And that's what makes it so haunting and strange at the same time. I mean, it almost feels like a piece of Tilly's skin, like sloughed off and dissolved in the bed. It's just uh, terrifying. And the different images that we're getting or the different things that have been going on in this story so far as well, all kind of hint at, or, or maybe I should say are drawing on tropes from different types of stories, right? We, we've got some mad scientist stuff going on, but we've also got, you know, the, the moving curtains in the window when nobody's there, which is obviously a ghost story. We're hearing footsteps, right? You know, Tilly clearly, you know, says someone's walking around here, but some of the things that are going on in this story, right? Saying like you would hear her walk, you know, you, you know, you would recognize that it was weird if you heard it, but he thinks that he saw this face. There's something weird on his bed. All of that then has me wondering, like, you know, is there a secret wife locked up? Somewhere like in this other room, this room that Tilly says is, you know, the storeroom that's got like lumber from his shop. What what pharmacy needs lumber? Right. Which is what he says about this room. So, you know, there's all this weird stuff happening, but it's all kind of from different genres. And Wolf is doing the thing he does so well or one of the things he does so well, which is mash those things up. Right. And there are two party, you know, interjections attached to this really brief section as well. The first is from Eleanor Bold, and, and which actually opens up this section. And she tells Samart that she hopes that he turned on the lights when he got up after seeing the ghost face in his dream. And Samart says, of course, that's what he did, though it did take him a while to find the lights. You know, he was in a new house and everything. And, and Glenn, just as you were saying, this feels to me like the same sort of thing that we saw in chapter two with Doherty and Weir, where we spent a lot of our, our chapter two discussion talking about what Wolf is doing with all of these different genres in storytelling, you know, and, and in this St. Brandon story and Finn McCool story in chapter two, Doherty changes the story explicitly to teach Weir a lesson about like not laughing at what cats are called. And in the same way here, it feels like Smart is adjusting some of the details of his story on the fly to suit the needs of the audience. The, the next interjection we get comes from Olivia after Smart describes the skin on Tilly's body. And Olivia says that she could have screamed, like this is what she says out loud. And then Weir writes that uh, she just said that to keep like the excitement up as the story progressed. Or like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe to flirt a little with, with Smart. Weir knows, though, that what Olivia would have really done 
had she had the opportunity, would have been to borrow a knife from Tilly and whack off a piece of skin in order to examine it under one of the microscopes in, in Tilly's room. And after this interjection, you know, Smart continues on with the story. Yeah, this interjection is great here. This is detail about, you know, what Olivia would really do would be get a, to get a microscope and figure out what's going on here. Because, yeah, Olivia is a mad scientist, too. She's trying to like reverse engineer medieval Pekingese dogs from the little lap dogs that they are now just like in her backyard and is making weird clean up the, the pens that they're in, right? In the same way that Tilly's doing these weird experiments and making Julius Smart, you know, clean up his kitchen for him, right? Like they're both mad scientists. Yeah. And we should also be skeptical of what Weir says he knows like Olivia would have really done because there's a dozen times in this story. I mean, it feels like a dozen times. It's enough that we should take notice of it. Weir says, I guess I didn't really know Olivia as well as I thought. And so like, it's just this constant, you know, Wolfian subjectivity breaking in to the story at different times. And it's, it's magnificent. Well, whether or not Olivia was, you know, sort of faking this kind of, uh, of scared interjection here, she's a great audience member, I think. So, uh, you, you know, you bring her along as the plant to any kind of live reading you're doing. I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's who she is. Well, all right. So we come back and Tilly explains a little bit about what's going on here. He says that his living flesh is being turned into stone and he's dying from it. This is killing him. And Julius takes this bit about stone literally and he, he objects to it. But Tilly explains, and, and this whole section, this is very much Wolf the Engineer writing here. He explains that our bones, right, human bones are basically just limestone and our teeth are just a kind of white flint. And he's just turning his soft tissue into stone now as well. And of course, he'll die before he completely turns into a statue because the calcium compounds will shut down his vital organs. And what's more, the condition is not some kind of contagion. It's it's something that's caused by a chemical compound that he himself devised. And so, yeah, as I've been saying, he is a mad scientist, right? And here is like the real revelation of that, the admission of that. Uh, but he's actually not giving this compound to himself. That's not what's happening here. And I should say too, that they have at this point gone down to the kitchen so that Tilly can have some brandy while Julius has an orange juice, because as we've talked about previously, Julius has a, a moral objection to booze. Tilly goes on to explain that he's haunted and that the malignant spirit that he spoke of upstairs has been drugging his food with his own compound in order to kill him. So yeah, he's a mad scientist who's living in a haunted house, right? It's this mashup of genres here. Uh, except though that he does want to be very clear that it's actually not a haunted house, right? It's not the house that is haunted. It's him. He's haunted. So he can't just leave the house and escape this situation. Though Julius's experience, I have to say, with his experience with this weird damp spot, to me at least, suggests otherwise. But, you know, that's something we can take up in the discussion episode when we try to figure out what actually has been going on in this in this house or with Tilly or really all of the above, I suppose. We also here get a digression about ghosts, a little stepping aside from the narrative here. So during their late night drink in the kitchen, Julius explains that he doesn't believe in ghosts, right? It says that his maternal grandmother, Rebecca Appleby, knew a lot about ghosts. And she always told him that ghosts and such avoid people who say that they don't believe in them. But in turn, they congregate around people who do say they believe in them. And so it is best policy just to say that you don't believe in ghosts, which Julius does here out loud 
just in case. And so, you know, I'm not sure that that really works, <laughs> right? <laughs> that sort of seemed like Julius is lying here, but I guess he believes that if you, as long as you say it out loud, the ghost will leave you alone. And we'll see if that turns out to work for him or not. But uh, yeah, I think what we really need to pause here and, and think about is the way that Wolf is throwing so many of these weird fiction tropes onto really just a handful of pages here. It's something I just, just love so much about this. I do too. And just after this bit of the story is told, you know, Peacock interrupts Smart again. And, you know, maybe it's because Vi is giving Smart some attention. But in any event, Peacock speaks up here because he can tell the story is like shifting into a new act. And he's like, hey, what about that breakfast mystery from five minutes ago? <laughs> so everyone talks about the breakfast mystery a little bit here. And, and Vi clearly thinks she has the answer. Blaine, I think, also may have figured it out and gives a clue to everyone else in the room. Like Vi's playing fair with everybody and Vi's just kind of being smug. And he says that Tilly's breakfast order had nothing in common with Smart's. And, and Tilly knew then that he was going to eat Smart's breakfast before Smart ordered. And he also knew that he wouldn't eat anything that was the same as Smart's because the ghost might tamper with the food. So what foods did Smart and Tilly have in common? And that that's the clue. Smart nods at Blaine's reasoning here and then continues on with the story. But before we get back into the story, I just want to point out how much Julius Smart likes cold orange juice. Oh, yeah. He absolutely loves cold orange juice. He's got ice cubes and the orange, though. You know, I mean, he also tells us how freaking hot it is. It's, you know, it's midnight and it's 90 degrees downstairs, right, in the kitchen with the windows open, right? I mean, that's that's hot. He describes this as hot enough that you might not want to wear a nightshirt. And uh, I was thinking like, yeah, for me, that threshold is about 65 degrees. That's, that's like so far back from that. So it was a different time, I guess. Yeah, some of these interjections we get with Julius while he's telling the story where he's like apologizing to the ladies for using the word toilet or like talking about a man in his underwear. He just seems like the kind of person who would have, had he been on like the MPAA board, would have uh, would have given Psycho an R rating, you know, because they show a toilet for the first time or something like that. Women shouldn't, uh, women shouldn't have to see that in a film, you know. But he's also telling the story and, and that apology kind of covers the stuff that he's included in the story. Well, and, and, and the inclusion of these apologies is great because it does clue us, you know, certainly us now, but I think even also a contemporary audience in the 70s, right? It reminds us that some of the details of this story are a bit scandalous. It does also reinforce the idea of Julius Smart as this moralizing teetotaler who wears perhaps not the theology of his religion on his sleeve, but the expected behavior of his religion on his sleeve. And he's broadcasting that uh, in ways that he's telling the story, you know, he's, and he's broadcasting that to the people at this party, and perhaps most importantly, to Olivia. But all right, well, we come back from the section break here. We're still at the kitchen table having a drink. And here Tilly explains that it's the food, right? The malignant spirit is poisoning his food. And this is why he switched breakfast with Julius at the diner. And it's why he needs Julius to prepare his food for him. The idea here is that if the spirit isn't sure which meal is going to be for Tilly and which is going to be for Julius, then it might get stymied. Uh, also, you know, Julius can be vigilant not to leave any food unattended. And it seems pretty clear that this is really what Tilly has hired Julius for. He just It's not to manage the shop. He, he just needs someone to live with him and, and run interference, you know, with this, this spirit. 
Well, we pick up the story the next morning at breakfast. Tilly doesn't want any food, just coffee. And he sits at the table with his coffee, just writing something down in his notebook. And Julius eventually realizes that what he's writing down are notes about his condition, uh, which is to say that Tilly is working on a cure. And that's it, really. That's it for the story for now, because we're going to get back to the frame with Weir in just a moment. But right after this section break, we get another interjection because Olivia wants to finally explain her solution to the riddle about what breakfast item it is that Tilly didn't eat at the diner now that they have this new information about his eating habits. Right. Olivia is sitting there looking smug and Eleanor Bold is a little put off by this, but like in a fun group dynamic type of way. And so Olivia can't hold it in any longer. The answer to the breakfast riddle is hominy grits. Because it comes with everything, especially ham, and Tilly ordered himself a bowl, so it must be the grits. But and I, you know, also want to say here that Olivia reads Tilly's actions and choices as those of a madman as well. You know, she she doesn't see Tilly as as a as a man who made a grave error in mixing medicine or or one who was literally haunted. Uh, she's kind of ignoring that those tropes are like part of the reality of the story. And so, as we pointed out in our last episode, Olivia is kind of fixing this story in the real world. She wants to believe that Smart is telling a true story and maybe embellishing a little bit. So she's thinking about Tilly as a madman. I don't have too much more to say about this section either. Really, the the story up to this point, even though we're going to be taken out of it as we near the end of the episode, I guess, though, that there is one thing that jumped out to me. Tilly asks Smart to pick up a pencil that rolled off the table, right? When he's writing in his notebook, he puts the pencil down, it rolls off. And Smart won't do it initially and says while he's telling the story that, you know, he talked to Tilly at this moment as if he had $1,000 in his pocket. And to me, this is a revealing line about Smart. He recognizes how indebted he is to Tilly and how much he's agreed to in taking care of Tilly, but he won't be a complete doormat. He's got boundaries. But the way that Smart makes this statement sounds to me like Smart believes that dignity is something you can have only when you can afford to maintain it. So maybe he will end up being as bad as Naranj the Marid. That's a great observation. I did not know what to make of that scene. It seemed out of place and like it didn't really tell us anything. You know, if we need to know that uh, Tilly has trouble moving around, there are other ways to do that. And in fact, we're, we're going to get that later on in the story. So this scene was just not necessary from that perspective. And uh, it confused me a little bit about what it's for. And I think that, yeah, that's a great observation. You've hit the nail on the head there. I do want to say one more thing about this before we move back to the, the frame too. Well, one, I guess, you know, of course, we also are going to be taking up in our discussion, we'll have to take up the issue of whether or not we think that this story is true uh, or fictional or, you know, somewhere in between, right? Well, you know, imagining that as maybe kind of a spectrum, we'll see where we want to plot that. So we'll, we'll be taking up this tension that we saw between Olivia and Blaine and the way that they were even trying to solve this, this riddle. But something that really jumped out to me here about Tilly's whole explanation of what's going on and the real reason he's hired Julius here and what he expects Julius to do and why he thinks that will solve the problem struck me as a little bit weird, right? Because his idea is, okay, there's a spirit that's poisoning my food. I know that for sure. I want it to stop. So I think the way to make it stop is to confuse it about which food is mine and then it won't poison my food anymore. 
But I mean, I feel like it's equally, at least equally plausible, if not more plausible, that the ghost will just start poisoning all the food, right? And so isn't Julius running like a severe risk here? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, maybe Tilly believes that the ghost is uh, like more of a revenant than a poltergeist. Like a poltergeist would be way more mischievous and just like kill everyone and burn the house down. Uh, maybe a revenant is more attached to an individual. I don't know. I just rewatched The Conjuring uh, <laughs> lately. Uh, and, and that's about a ghost who hunts, uh, who attaches itself to an individual, even though it feels like a haunted house movie for the first third. And, uh, I don't want to go too far afield here, but the first third of that movie is really great. If you like haunted house stories. Well, I think, you know, what we're meant to infer here is that one Tilly knows who this spirit is, right? This is the spirit of a person. He knows who this person is and this person is trying to kill him. So presumably this is a revenge plot, right? That's what's happening here. And so, yeah, I guess we're just left then to understand that Tilly's pretty sure that this spirit of this dead person who he knew in real life and presumably did some harm to, uh, he knows that that person would not kill someone else in order to get to Tilly, or at least, you know, expects that that's probably true enough to actually gamble with Julius's life here. But Julius doesn't ask this question. Tilly's not forthcoming with any information about this. So yeah, we'll have to keep our eye on this. We'll, we'll see if we get more. And if we don't, then we will do our best to speculate and try to try to figure out who we think this this ghost might be. Yeah. I, and there are some things we didn't mention about Tilly. Like one thing that I'm thinking about now is we're kind of pausing in this moment, which is that, you know, Tilly has a dog house, but no dog. And that that's kind of what excludes the idea of a pet from causing the curtain to ruffle or something like that. Uh, but Tilly's explanation is I've had bad luck with animals. Like they die regularly. Like maybe he tried to get animals after his wife died or, Maybe he's testing pharmaceuticals on animals. Maybe he did that with his son or his wife blames something. You know, the, it could be the ghost of his wife. I don't know what I'm saying. None of the information is clear. But the one kind of things are really off here line we get about Tilly is I've had bad luck with animals. Yeah. And that sounds not just ominous. It's, it sounds sinister. It sounds totally sinister. Yeah. This is, this is Island of Dr. Moreau stuff here. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to do one last part here before we close this episode out. And as we said, this is a return to the frame narrative with Weir. First, Weir explains that he once tried to tell this story, Julia Smart's story here. He tried to tell this story to a colleague when he was around 45 or 50. And this colleague was an advertising man who had flown in to Cashinsville to pitch a new campaign to him. And the idea behind this campaign is that consumers can win a prize for buying jars of whatever it is that Weir's company makes. Uh, it's something sold in jars, I guess that's clear, uh, because the consumers will have to soak the labels off the jars and then mail them back to the company in order to win the prize. Reading about this, this was kind of a strange experience for me. Contests like this were a huge part of my childhood, right? They were all over the commercials, uh, maybe largely for like breakfast cereal, but I also remember it for soups and cookies as well. And what, what what's weird here, what was the strange thing that happened to me while reading this is that I've only just now realized like the absence of this sort of thing in the world today. And I just have to say that this whole thing is a, a, a really weird idea. And I'm glad we don't really do this anymore. This idea of like, take something off of the packaging and mail it back to us. And maybe we'll 
give you a prize of some sort. But I don't know, this was something that just seemed like a normal part of the functioning of the world that uh, I think if someone came from Mars or Venus or, you know, whatever, and saw us doing this would just <laughs> really be be mystified by that. But uh uh, all of that's really a digression. We can return to it later, I suppose. But all of that's a, a digression because the detail that really matters is that this incident with the advertising man is taking place in his office. And Weir has duplicated this office in his weird mansion, right? This uh, museum house that he's living in. And, and, you know, of course he's done that. And at this point, Weir has decided to go back there to this duplicate of his office in order to continue writing this memoir now that spring is here and it's warmer in the house and he doesn't have to be close to the fire anymore. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the weird mansion stuff in a little bit, but th- this bit about competitions really got me <laughs> thinking about what the world was like when I was a kid too. And these were something I was never really able to compete in. I, I don't think my parents ever had enough money when I was that young uh, for these things to like be possible or even appeal to me. Like, I don't even know if we had boxes of brand name cereal regularly enough to get whatever you could from sending in the barcodes or whatever. But I do remember my aunt and uncle smoked Marlboro cigarettes and I loved when we visited them looking through like the loyalty catalog at their house <laughs> and thinking that they could get a pool table if they smoked a thousand packs of cigarettes or something like that. I don't know. It's a dark wish now looking <laughs> back, but eh, they did have a few pieces of Marlboro gear. Nothing that big. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, this is this is a, a part another part of that material culture, like the loyalty program. Keep buying our cereal so you can get toys. It just doesn't exist anymore. And uh, we should also bring up like the, the prize that Weir's company is talking about this for like the label turn-ins. And it's a day at the circus. It seems like a pretty crummy circus from the way it's described. But um, the circus is going to kind of weave its way through this chapter in, in a strange way as we go on. Right. This is a little crumb here, right? This is a little tease of the fact that, yeah, we're going to get some circus in this, in this chapter. And yeah, this, uh, this bit about the circus too, it, you know, it, it's, it's a traveling circus. So it actually will like go to your home and, you know, amuse your kids. And one of the things that we infer here at this point is that the product that Weir's company is selling is something that is for kids. It's sold in a jar and it's for kids, right? And so moms are going to want to get the circus for their kids, or really kids are going to beg their mom to buy lots of jars of this stuff. So they might be able to get the the circus to come. And the circus has an elephant, but it's a mechanical elephant. Like somebody, I don't know, is inside of it or something. It was not really quite clear to me how it actually works. We're not going to see that in operation, but uh, it reminded me of a short story that we've not gotten to yet, so I won't say much more about it. But uh, it, there's a short story that Wolf has that involves someone being inside of a uh, a kind of amusement uh, attraction, uh, and uh, you can see the see the germ of that here. I think. Yeah, I think that that's a really fair point. I was thinking about that story as well. My gut is that this circus is actually a terrible thing, like all of those loyalty <laughs> program things turned out to be, uh, and and because it, it all comes in like one van. So there's like not a Ferris wheel. There's not. It's just stupid mechanical attractions. And so yeah, maybe that'll entertain kids for a day. But in my experience, you need a couple real life goats to go along with it to set up a little petting zoo. <laughs> well, there's a clown, and probably the clown. Like, I mean, we don't know, but I'm assuming there's a clown, and probably the clown juggles and makes animal balloons, right? So that with the fake elephant, that's all you really need, I guess, for like a six year old's birthday party or something. I don't know, <laughs> but this all sounds really disturbing to me. I never had a birthday party like that or any any party like that. I also never mailed in proofs of purchase like this. I remember, you know, it being all over the commercials, but. It 
was never it was never something that I did. I think you know, like you uh, were suggesting, Brandon, it might just be something that I couldn't talk my parents into you know buying enough of the stuff in order to actually participate. And uh, I have to say that as an adult now, um, I agree. What a stupid thing to what a stupid <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> All right, we can leave that aside now and get back to we're really what's going to be the the last section of the story that we're going to cover today. And this next section opens with the line of dialogue, I found it. And what Weir means is the office, because as we will recall, Weir has some trouble navigating his own house. But here he is now in a replica of his old office at the plant. He's still also thinking about this meeting with the advertising man. And and we learn here that Julius Smart was the founder of the company, uh, that he thought up the formula for whatever it is that they're selling in these jars, and that Olivia came up with the brand name, though we don't learn what that brand name is. And now we get finally to the real point of all of this, which is to tell us more about Olivia. Her wedding to Julius Smart was the largest in Cashinville's memory. Weir's father, who, yeah, that's uh, Olivia's brother, right? He paid for the whole thing, and it was expensive. He spent a lot of money on this wedding. And we learn here that their father had instructed John, that's that's Weir's father, had instructed him to do right by Olivia before he died. Uh, and I think that this supports my idea that, that Weir's dad is the one who's controlling all of the family money. And also we learn, though, you know, this is also something that we could have figured out for ourselves. But we learn explicitly that Weir's parents don't come home for the wedding. Uh, and in fact, at this time, they are in Istanbul. We also here return to the affair of the Chinese egg. And, and this is very confusing because this chapter opened by telling us that Olivia bought the egg from Mrs. Lorne. But here, Weir explains that Mrs. Lorne played a role in McAfee ending up with the egg. At least I, I think that's what's in, implied here. But then Weir narrates to us that Olivia definitely bought the egg. And this happened because uh, Jimmy McAfee needed to write a check and Mrs. Lauren would not take a check. She would only take cash. And that's what Olivia had. But yeah, there is still more to this tale, I think, that we'll, we'll have to get. And uh, the last thing here is Margaret Lorne. She was one of the flower girls at the wedding. Now, at this point, when this wedding happens, Weir is 10, and Margaret Lorne then, I, I guess, must be about 12. And Weir explains that at this age, he thought girls were silly, but still, he was drawn to Margaret Lorne for, for some reason. He gives us a description of her, and here, here's one thing he says that will tie us, I think, right back to chapter two. It may have been something in the way that she held her head and looked at me sidelong from those eyes, as though her soul were staring at me out of the narrow windows in a tower. And that is it. That's where this ends. Uh, we'll, we'll have to pick up next time with more of Julia Smart's story about Mr. Tilly. All right. Well, let's start from the top of this section and work our way through it. I can't respond to anything we've just <laughs> covered because there's so much in this section. So Weir writes to us or to whomever his audience is, as though he found his office at the plant not the replica office at the house when he says, I found it. So we're back to these sorts of liminal spaces that confuse memory with reality. Then, Glenn, I think you, you, know, you said he finds the office in the house and then thinks about the meeting that he had with the, the salesman. And that's true, but that's also like a cut you made in, in the text because it's totally this like liminal attitude where he talks about finding the office in the house and then looking out over his window. And Wolf really does a good job of, of just mishmashing these together. And we also learned that Weir in this moment, or maybe in the past, can't read his mail as it was prepared by Miss 
Burkhead because concealed nails either hold the blotter to the desk and the mail is under it, or they're doing something with the mail where he can't look at it. And I don't quite understand this statement. And maybe one of our listeners will be able to to help us kind of make sense out of this concealed nails, making it impossible to read mail. Before we get to the Chinese egg, I want to talk about this wedding bit and maybe try to explain a little more a little bit about how Wolf is using language to heighten certain types of abnormalities in order to make other abnormalities feel matter of course. So we're just reports on stuff about the wedding, but he kind of couches it in a, in a compliment towards his aunt. Like right before he talks about the wedding, he makes sure that he gives the salesman the true information about the brand name, which the salesman likes, which is that Aunt Olivia named this company. And then we learned that his father paid for an extravagant wedding. So, you know, what a good man his father must be. But this just hides the fact that his father skipped his sister's wedding in favor of traveling in Istanbul and that he's abandoned his child and has also interpreted his father's statement, it's John's father's statement, of like, do right by Olivia to mean pay for whatever Olivia wants. It doesn't mean to John, like, have a good relationship with your sister and be there for her in in important occasions. And as we've seen, though I'm not sure we've mentioned it, we've seen that Olivia has fond memories of a trip she took with her family, including John, to the South. And that's where she learned about the, you know, grits coming with everything you order. In fact, John is evoked twice in this chapter, both in, in relatively positive terms. And we see that Olivia wishes her sister-in-law were at the party because she'd love the story that Julia Smart is telling. And I just really get the sense here that Olivia kind of misses her family, or at least that in thinking back, Weir can't directly approach how much he misses his family and is using Olivia as a kind of, I don't know, bit of transference or projection here as he's telling this part of the story. But the language that Wolf uses or Weir uses to talk about this stuff is all pretty positive, and it just masks the tragedy behind it and the strangeness of these circumstances. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that tragedy can generally be used as a synonym for aberrant or abnormality, but in Weir's case specifically, I think that his circumstances as a child are both aberrant or abnormal and tragic. This whole situation is terribly tragic and you know we're just getting this story from the perspective of of weir both as a kid and as an adult but to think about this situation from the perspective of say olivia you know in this situation that right she you know meets julia smart here she thinks he's a really great storyteller so you know they start dating and they get married or you know they get engaged they're going to get married and so she sends a telegram to her brother who's in Europe with his wife and who, you know, has left, they've left their kid with her, with Olivia to take care of while they're gone for an indeterminate length of time gone because, uh, it's just uncomfortable for them to be in Cashinsville because everyone thinks that their kid killed someone else's kid. So they've just left. Right. And she sends a telegram to her brother to say, Hey, I'm getting married. And he, just writes her a check or, you know, makes some kind of arrangement with the bank or whatever. And that's it. But I have to assume that part of what Olivia was communicating, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, was 
uh, I'm getting married. So come home and get your kid. Cause I'm starting my own life now as an adult, like as, as a family. So come get your kid. And they don't, and we know they don't for years. And that is, that's gotta be really hurtful for Olivia. And is clearly, you're right, not at all what their father would have wanted. So, you know, John here, not fulfilling that obligation at all. But also, I wonder what this is like for Julia Smart here, who presumably, you know, when he's proposing to Olivia or when they're getting engaged, assumes that Weir's going to go back and live with his own parents now. You know, I have to imagine that Julia Smart does not think that what he's getting involved in here is to instantly have a, you know, like, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 year old. What Weir is implicitly learning as well is that like money covers a multitude of sins, right? So like Julia Smart is getting paid double what he expected, but he has to do all this other stuff. And that's fine because he's getting money. And even if he has to, you know, put that on the line to maintain his dignity, he's going to do that. But like dignity is connected to money in this instance. And we even see the same sort of thing where where the woman without arms has a ton of money to spend on this whatever medicine Tilly has. And you know, Weir thinks, look, at, do right by somebody means make sure you pay for whatever they want. It's like these lessons that Weir is learning, that Wolf is writing about, is about what it means to live in a society who's like unthought, like the background functioning of the society is if you have enough money, you can do whatever you want and still be generically thought of as good, even though this is all awful stuff. All these people are are, are awful so far, but we are just learning that money can cover all that up. And that that is, I think, you know, part of the background of this text as well. Yeah, and, and and you're right to point out that this is something that is definitely reinforced by Julia Smart. But I, I think this is also a good place to double back and, and just you know emphasize again Julia Smart's role here as a teetotaler and as really the the only uh, you know, with the exception, I guess, of the you know, scene at the Lorne Farm. But this is really the sort of first major character who we've had uh, who is a religious person as well. And so we are seeing Weir here get, perhaps for the first time, some real like moral uh, example or ethical exemplar uh, at any rate. Yes. And we know that Julia Smart is going to play some kind of symbolic function in in Weir's thought life, if not reality as well. But let's move on here. Uh, We've got the Chinese egg to talk about. So I don't think we're going to get any more Chinese egg drama. I do think this paragraph is meant to wrap it up. Of course, I haven't read ahead in the book. uh, I mean, beyond chapter three, but here's my understanding. I I think that Olivia bought the egg on the day because she had cash and could put it in the family bank without M. Lorne treating it like a transaction. It seems to me in the text that McAfee actually wrote a check, which either Mrs. Lorne took or McAfee kept and showed to her later. So they were actually bidding against each other. And the idea was like they secretly bid and Mrs. Lauren was going to give it to the person who paid the best price for it. You know, like the most fair price for the egg or whatever. And that McAfee's check was later to be shown to be written to cash. And that then that check was more than what Olivia bid with cash. So Mrs. Lauren trying to do the right thing then kind of had to eat crow, refund Olivia's money, and then cash McAfee's check and give him the egg. And that's what I think happened. But there's a curious line here where Weir writes 
that Olivia only wished to make McAfee believe that she was bidding against him. And this suggests to me then that the scheming about buying the egg as a birthday gift was just a ruse or that Weir is revising some previous statements he made here and that Olivia was indeed planning to give McAfee the egg today for his birthday, but then all of that was screwed up as well. So we get this sense, and it's kind of a revised sense, that Olivia really did always intend to give McAfee the egg. If we do get more on this, well, then we'll have a lot more clarity than we do now. Yeah, so I, I don't think that you've read that right about the the the, the check. So let me let me pitch my alternative here, and uh, we're probably both wrong, which is really part of the fun of dissecting this. And it's not like Wolf has written this poorly or accidentally written it obscurely. This is intentional, right? This is meant to be puzzling and and confusing to us. But you know, one of the lines here, right, is that. Uh, there, there, there are kind of three key points in this paragraph, which is all on page 179 of this 2012 Orb edition. <laughs> Anyone who wants to take a look at this and help us, help us out. Uh, one of the lines here, it's it's totally parenthetical, is that uh, Weir describes the outcome here as Mr. McAfee's victory against Olivia, even though we've been told Olivia bought the egg. So the victory against her suggests that McAfee bought the egg. But I think that the solution to this puzzle actually is to say that Olivia did end up with the egg. She has the egg. She bought the egg, but that it was a victory for McAfee because Olivia then is the one who purchased the egg with her money and does indeed end up giving it to him as a birthday present. So he gets the egg and gets to keep his money, whereas Olivia loses her money and also doesn't get to keep the egg that this is where the the pretending to be bidding against him was uh you know comes into play this other other line the second of the three lines that i think really matter here is that she was pretending to bid against him because she didn't really want to get the egg she wanted him to get it so that he would give it to her as a gift right i think with the idea being that whoever gets it is going to give it to the other one as uh, as a present and the third line that matters here is the last line of this paragraph, which is, it was not until it was much too late that it occurred to my aunt that Mr. McAfee's check might have been written to cash, meaning then that Mrs. Lauren's objection to taking the check could have been overcome if McAfee had written it out to cash instead of written it out to uh, M. Lorne by name. And I think the realization here is that, of course, McAfee knows this and could have brought it up and chose not to because allowing Olivia to get the egg here is actually the victory for him. That That's my sense of what's going on here, but totally confusing. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to both have really different readings of this then. I'm, I don't want to get launched into like a might could distinction, <laughs> which is, you know, this line might have been written to cash. Also, I mean, could have been alternately. And uh, that that's, I think, where we're probably in a disagreement about what that what that how that word is operating in that sentence. Oh, I I see. You're 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 not reading that as subjunctive. No. You're no, reading not. that as indicative. You're reading that might as maybe. Maybe it was written to cash, but Olivia didn't know that. Right. And then once Mrs. Lauren realized that she had to go back and because she's honest or religious as this text says, uh had to had to swap things around. But um uh, I don't know. We just have two different readings here. Yeah, and I, I, now that you've explained where your where your reading comes from, which is the reading of this line as indicative uh, rather than subjunctive, I will say you're definitely wrong. That's a subjunctive. 
<laughs> okay, well, so it goes. So so be it. Uh, yeah, as it is written, so shall it be. Well, let's uh, let's close out the episode here talking about Margaret Lorne. We get lots of flower imagery here attached to her at the wedding. She's the flower girl, literally, but she's also wearing green and daffodils. Uh, this is imagery we saw at the opening of the chapter called Olivia. But what I really want to most focus on here is the way that Weir remembers Margaret Lauren, remembers feeling attraction to the to a girl for the first time. Uh, Glenn, you've pointed this out. And how it was, you know, that the way her eyes looked at him, quote, as though her soul were staring at me out of narrow windows in a tower. We've already talked about some of the tower imagery in this novel, and both of those images at the time were associated with Aunt Olivia, once in her suitor story, and then on the way to the Lorns, you know, that cloud in the sky, which is described in that moment as a princess tower, and then as something carved by night. So I guess what I'm really saying here, without making any definitive statements about it, are that we're getting more associations between Aunt Olivia and Margaret Lauren, more confused symbols between them, as well as the return of some of that Princess Tower imagery that we've been tracking. That's been one of the real, maybe, maybe surprise isn't quite right, but one of the really fun, interesting things uh, about chapter three so far is the extent to which that story, without really any reference to it, certainly nothing explicit, is all over this chapter, right? That that story is turning out to be one of the, and perhaps the principal thematic through line between chapter two and chapter three without Wolf calling explicit attention to it at all. Right. And I mean, that's just more of that uh, sleight of hand that we've seen throughout this chapter that's just so expertly performed. Well, I feel like if we keep talking, Glenn, we're just going to keep quibbling over language about that <laughs> Chinese egg story. So we should bow out now. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Next time, we'll be back to cover pages 180 to 192 in the Orb 2012 edition. This has us reading up through the line, it can't be the end, for those of you who are reading along in other editions. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>